Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. And one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the story of St. Patrick through the centuries, why civilizations collapse and communities disappear, and to end the show, we'll hear about Lady Gregory's copper beech tree and how she got her VIP guests to autograph it. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we looked at the history of the most famous film awards in the world, the Oscars, and we found out about the highs, the lows, the triumphs, and the times people were robbed. So if you want to listen back to that or any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the story of St. Patrick through the centuries, from patron saint to modern influencer. St. Patrick is one of the most famous saints of all time, and of course, one of the patron saints of Ireland. But who was St. Patrick? And how much of what we know about him is fact? How much legend? Well, a new book looks at the historical man and the evidence of his writings, the myths and the apocryphal stories, and describes the social changes that led in the 18th century to his emergence as a symbol of Irish nationalism. The book is called Patrick, From Patron Saint to Modern Influencer. It's published by New Island Books, in paperback and I'm delighted to welcome the author Alana Hopkin to the show tonight. Alana, you're very welcome. Thank you. Can we begin with something that caught me by surprise and that's about the shamrock because it's such an integral part of the iconography of of, of Ireland, never mind St. Patrick, and yet it's something that possibly doesn't perhaps even exist according to the botanists. Well, they only agreed on this quite recently, like in the 1980s. Um, all throughout the 19th century and the early 20th century, there were great efforts made to identify the specific plant that was the shamrock. And eventually people got sense and agreed that the shamrock is the winter resting stage of the clover plant. White or red clover doesn't seem to matter. But the reason it's so small is that it's just coming to life again after the winter. And we pick it around March the 17th, obviously. So it grows. And if you look at the plant you picked in March a couple of months later, you'll see it has clover flowers on it. And I'm really glad the botanists managed to agree about this. I think it was actually Charles Nelson of Glasnevin at the time who made the official pronouncement that the shamrock is the clover. And tell us then about the colour green and how that became, again, part of the Irish identity and part of the St. Patrick iconography, because if you go back to earlier stages, it would have been blue. Yes, it was blue in heraldry. But I guess because of the shamrock and the colour green and the colour green used by the Irish regiments in the army, It became green around the mid-18th century because that was when they started officially drowning the shamrock in the Irish regiments. They would parade up and down and they would um, dip the shamrock in some strong alcoholic drink. And so green became the colour of St. Patrick. And then they needed to assert the Irish Catholic Church's allegiance to Rome for reasons that are very complicated. But the simplest way to do it was to recreate St. Patrick as an elderly bishop in green robes with a green meter, carrying a crozier in one hand, a shamrock in the other, and the snakes writhing under his feet. So St. Patrick, the green bishop, became the symbol of St. Patrick. So green stuck and green became a symbol of Irishness. So when people couldn't find shamrock to carry in a parade, they'd just use a green token, a green ribbon, 
and um, they wore them in their hats in the early days. But green became synonymous with Irishness. It's a fascinating study. And in a way, it's more about the legend and the legends which emerged in the centuries after the death of St. Patrick, supposedly on the 17th of March, 462 AD, uh, as much as the life itself and how within a couple of centuries, lives of Patrick were being written and the story was being told and retold and reinvented in the centuries afterwards. Yes, it's really a wonderful story in itself. You have this wealthy young Roman Briton. That doesn't mean he was Italian. He grew up when Britain was under the rule of the Romans. And his father was a deacon, so he was quite um, well set up. And as a teenager, he was kidnapped, as we all know, and trafficked, essentially, to Ireland, where he was sold as a slave. And it's even interesting what you say about the Roman influence, because it's it's interesting that there's kind of a Protestant Patrick and a Catholic Patrick, and the Protestant Patrick in the, in the imagery and the iconography emphasises that Roman dimension. Yes, and I think that's because there was an enormous amount of scholarship done about St. Patrick in the late 19th, early 20th century. I mean, there, there were like um, 26 full-length biographies between 1864 and 1905, 26 full-length biographies of someone about whom we really know very little. And so all these things were under close discussion. The migrant element is something that I think has gotten a lot of attention in recent years as well. Enda Kenny referenced it in the White House uh, on one of his visits as Taoiseach. It's fitting that we gather here each year to celebrate St. Patrick and his legacy. He too, of course, was an immigrant. And though he is, of course, the patron saint of Ireland for many people around the globe, he's also a symbol of, indeed, the patron of immigrants. And I suppose given that there is uh, so much going on at the moment, the uh, hostility towards refugees and claims of Ireland being full and so on, that it's interesting to look back at the story of a patron saint who came here as a migrant, as a, well, I suppose, uh, as, a, as a slave, but, you know, as, uh, as someone who, who yes. wasn't native to these shores. Because Irish patriotism has always been very strong. And there you have a patron saint who came from Roman Britain. We're not sure exactly where he could have been Scottish, Welsh, English, or even some people say from Brittany. But the insularity of the view that predominated in Ireland in the late 19th, all the way up through the 20th century, was very much the born and bred one. Whereas nowadays, it has done a complete flip to everyone is welcome. And certainly our citizenship ceremony, I'd say is probably the best in the world. Everyone gets a personal letter from the Minister for Justice and it asks them not to lose their identity when they become Irish, but to contribute their culture to Irish culture. And there you have multiculturalism. So it's been a complete turnaround from the way it was, let's say, 100 years ago in 1923. The attitude would have been very different. But I think it's all also to do with the growth and then the assimilation into international movements of the Irish missionary movement. The missions were huge in Ireland. And again, St. Patrick was the patron saint of missionaries. And of course, it's all there in your subtitle as well, from patron saint to modern influencer. What exactly do you mean by modern influencer? Is it that it's it's in some way symbolising the changes that have taken place or reflecting some of the changes that have taken place in, in Ireland as well over the last few decades? Yes, it's a kind of intuitive leap from St. Patrick to the huge growth in, in racial and national diversity that has happened even since the book was first published back in the late 80s. Um, we've seen the demise of traditional Catholic Ireland and the uniformly white faces in the old photographs. 
And we've gone from a country with no divorce and high emigration figures to a country with the highest population since the famine years, nearly six million, where abortion, divorce and same-sex marriage are all legal. And a multiracial society is emerging. So Patrick, as influencer, I see as the person saying welcome, because he was welcomed to Ireland. He made it his home. And in a way, it's a rebuke to those who say that Ireland is full and who are hostile towards uh, refugees in Ireland to remember that that one of our patron saints and and St. Patrick is someone who who was a migrant, who came here, who was a slave and uh, everything he represents is contrary to what uh, those, those opponents of refugees are saying. And the people of Ireland welcomed him, by and large. I mean, those who weren't trying to kill him in ambushes became his followers and became Christians. And that's a huge achievement. And so, you know, it's it's not cut and dried, so this, then that. It's a kind of intuition that I think we all share. I mean, Irish people are very welcoming, by and large. We've got all these exceptions, but they're often politically motivated. It's not actually coming from the people themselves. It's being imposed on them. So St. Patrick is is really saying, you know, be yourself and enrich your culture by welcoming other people. I mean, imagine if Patrick had never converted Ireland and we stubbornly remained pagan out here on the edge of Europe. That could have happened. So it's 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 a concept that is a little bit, if you like, almost poetic, you could say. Patrick is an influencer in that he is an example out there in the fifth century, encouraging us to be our best. And Alan, it's a fascinating part of the story of St. Patrick that in some ways he's even bigger outside of this country, that you have these huge parades in the United States, in New York and Boston and in places in Texas. You know, it's huge in Australian Sydney, for example, and that in some ways the parades outside of the country can be much bigger and the idea of of making the rivers go green and the green beard. These are all elements that you don't really have in Ireland. It's that old cliche that it's much more fun to be Irish abroad on Patrick's Day than it is to be Irish in Ireland, where you've got to go to a parade in the cold rain and there's not really an awful lot happening, though nowadays, of course, it's much better with the Patrick Festival in Dublin. But, you know, the sort of 20th century memory of Patrick's Patrick's Day for most people is of being cold and wet. Whereas abroad, you're you're made much of um, on Patrick's Day. It used to be virtually impossible to do any work on Fleet Street on Patrick's Day because if you were Irish, you were an excuse to break out the booze and let's have a drink and let's toast St. Patrick. And as to why it has grown so big, I mean, there is an initial explanation with the extent of Irish emigration and Irish settlements all around the world, which particularly explains North America, the United States and Australia. But, you know, the French don't do this, the Italians don't do this, the Germans don't do it. It's it's a particularly Irish thing to include everyone else in the celebration of your national day. And somehow it works. I mean, it's been an absolute miracle of a kind for tourism. Uh, nobody used to come to Ireland in March, April, but now it, the season starts a week or two before Patrick's Day. And it's all due to this extraordinary celebration. Military parades were one, um, if you like, godparent of it. Again, the army parading with the shamrock. So you turn that into a community kind of parade. And it's all the greatest fun and everyone loves it. And now they are making all the buildings green as well as the rivers. So it's an extraordinary phenomenon, though how much it has to do with the saint that I was describing, the the very stern and devoted brave man, is, is, is not evident, you know, but it's because it went through the experience of the Irish people at home and abroad, and all these things fed into it, that we've ended up with this wonderful international celebration on the 17th of March. And there's wonderful illustrations in the book, but you also get a sense from them about how 
the imagery and iconography around Patrick has changed and evolved over time as well in terms of what he's wearing and what he's carrying and, 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 and how people want to uh, project him to different audiences. Absolutely. On the Protestant side, the youth and the Romanness of St. Patrick, the green-clad bishop was a construct of the Catholic Church at a particular time in its history when it needed to emphasize its links with Rome. So what better way than to dress the national saint up in green bishop's robes, as he would have appeared in a church at that time. The first known example of that St. Patrick is actually from 1624. It's an engraving that's among the, the illustrations in the book. And one of the great pleasures of doing a new edition of the book is that I was in charge of the images that were used in it. And my publisher very kindly let me have 43 full color, full page illustrations. And you'll see very clearly the difference between the Catholic and Protestant image of Patrick in there, among other things. The story of the snakes Was that with Patrick from the very beginning or is that something that emerged as the centuries went on? It seems to have always been there. Um, It's certainly very strongly connected with his struggle on Cro-Patrick on the top of the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So you have all these um, typical folklore motifs. And of course, we all know there never were any snakes anyway because of the development of geology and geography that left Ireland isolated and snakeless. But it's a story people love. And finally then, just in terms of the enduring appeal of St. Patrick, is it just because it's a bank holiday and there's so much associated with it in terms of praise and all of that? Or is it that he just keeps reinventing himself as, a, as an icon for different people in different ages? He seems to be a real shapeshifter. He's he's anybody's really, and uh, why not? You know, because he is just such a huge figure in his ability to convert a whole country with no bloodshed. Whether it's true or not, that's how he is thought of, and he's fun. You know, somehow or other, he's been turned into the patron saint of fun, which is so far from what he was. But everybody likes it and everybody enjoys it. And why not? And why not indeed? Well, my thanks to Alana Hopkin for joining me tonight to talk about her new book, Patrick, From Patron Saint to Modern Influencer. It's published in paperback by New Island's Books. And Alana, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back to Talking History. A new book explores the loss of ancient civilizations, the collapse of ruling elites and the disappearance of more recent communities and their local traditions. Some of these are now sealed under 3,000-year-old peat, others lost to rising seas or sands, and the carcasses of 20th century buildings, which serve as reminders of the destructive power of war. Exploring wide-ranging examples from prehistory to the present day challenges us to recognise past failures and identify what we need to do to protect the cultures of our current world. The book is called Amongst the Runes, Why Civilizations Collapse and Communities Disappear. It's published in hardback by Yale University Press. The author is John Darlington. And John, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you very much, Patrick. It's a great pleasure to be here. You tell the story through 17 different stories and examples. So tell us how you selected those those stories. Well, well, I think, I mean, my starting point is around kind of history repeats itself. And it it repeats itself because actually, frankly, no one was listening the first time round. So what I try to do is, is as an archaeologist, I'm kind of, I'm very familiar with uh, lots of places and collapsed civilizations across the world. So try to think about what are the themes which underpinned their collapse? What are the big, big issues which led to the disappearance of these places and the arrival of the ruin? And uh, so it was really driven by grouping some of the places that I knew into these themes. And the themes are, simply put, climate change. Uh, they are war. Uh, the economic collapse and failure, human error, which is all too prolific, uh, and natural hazards. And so the stories group themselves in these themes. I have to 
say that inevitably, as you go into the research for a book like this, you think it's all going to be very clear cut. And the, the, the actual answer is that there's rarely a single cause of collapse of a society. It tends to be one thing triggering it, another thing exacerbating it, and so on and so forth. So whilst the chapters are grouped around these themes, there's a lot of crossover. And in terms of history repeating itself, you see it with uh, the story of what happened to the Chilean economy a little over 100 years ago. It was so dependent on on one particular thing. And it's it, it, it has all of the echoes of what's happening at the moment with, with economies dependent on oil. Absolutely. So this is a story about uh, saltpeter, which is, as it was discovered in the the 19th century in the Atacama Desert, so one of the most dry, inhospitable places in the world. Saltpeter occurs naturally there. And uh, from the late 19th century all the way through to the kind of early 20th century, the demand of urbanization across the world, but particularly Europe and North America, meant that there was a demand for food, and that food was supported by, by fertilizer, and saltpeter is uh, a natural fertilizer. So the economy of this incredibly inhospitable place literally, so there was an establishment of huge numbers of these saltpeter mines and processing plants, and then whole towns and villages grow up around them. The one that I operate on is now a, a World Heritage Site called Humberstone. And Literally, the, the, the tax revenue which the salt brings, the exported saltpeter brings to the Chilean economy, literally funds 50% of all the income coming in for the economy. And that leads to this amazing growth of uh, Chilean bureaucracy, of the Chilean establishment, of buildings, of ports, of industry. Uh, but then World War I happens. And because the German economy is cut off from that saltpeter because of blockades. They effectively, uh, they, they create, their scientists create artificial fertilizer. And the moment that happens, the Chilean economy completely tanks, it disappears. So, you know, say it was amazingly important. And then suddenly over a period of 30 years, that, in, that income stream no longer exists because people can create, sort of, uh, create fertilizers in different ways. So really, there's a bit of a lesson there, as you say, from you know, what, what happens if you base your economy on such as the petro states of the Middle East without thinking to the future that eventually these are finite resources. They're going to run out anyway. So what happens next? And if you don't plan for it, then you get you know, then, then disaster happens. And one of the disasters can be the emergence of new diseases. And in some of the examples, you explore it very much as echoes with, with COVID-19 and the recent pandemic. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this, this story actually repeats itself on several occasions. There's, uh, there's the story of Easter Island uh, or Rapa Nui in, in the Pacific, where the arrival of uh, the kind of European explorers from around 1722. It was, it was it was named because it was discovered or rediscovered, I should say, uh, in 1722 uh, on Easter Day, and the arrival of Europeans to this really isolated island. It's what 3,700 kilometres away from the Chilean mainland. It's about 2,000 kilometres from its nearest neighbour. So it's a very isolated society with no natural immunity, but the arrival of Europeans bringing with them smallpox, syphilis, you know, a range of horrible, horrendous diseases has an immediate impact upon the population uh, and decimates it. And then there's further tragedy, which has led into this story around uh, the, the Rapa Nuins being taken away as slaves to support the Peruvian economy. And when they're in Peru, more cat diseases, there's no natural immunity. They return, some of them, the survivors, they return to Rapa Nui and pass on those diseases to the resident population. So in, it's, a, it's a complicated story, but, but the population of Rapa Nui, Easter Island, goes from around uh, 3,000 people in the 16th century to just 111 in the late uh, 19th century. It's a real tragedy, but as you say, echoes of a crisis which happened today, COVID being a perfect example. 
And of course, in recent times, we've also had the devastation caused by the earthquake in Turkey and Syria and the effects of that. And you, your book explores you know, earlier examples, the devastation that was caused by an earthquake in Jamaica in the 17th century and also going back to medieval times, one in Armenia. Yes, absolutely. So the, the 17th century one in Jamaica is is a kind of a very neat, tidy story, an absolute disaster, but it's, it's a very a story of this place called Port Royal, which is, used to be the capital of Jamaica. Uh, and in the 17th century, it was this burgeoning, thriving European town right on the edge of a, a 10 kilometer spit of land on the, on the southern coast of Jamaica. So it's an amazing economy, thriving with uh, as, a, as a place where trade is conducted, a place where the British in particular are undercutting the Spanish by avoiding taxes. So there's a great uh, tax evasion scheme happening here. You've got privateers and buccaneers who are again commissioned by the British to attack the Spanish. So it's a, an incredibly affluent, rich place uh, called the, the Sodom of the Caribbean in, in some views. Other views are, you know, this is a, an extraordinarily vibrant community. And then in one moment in 1692, an earthquake uh, occurs and essentially the, the land upon which Port Royal sits, 50% of it literally disappears. It turns to quicksand. So buildings drop, they simply drop into the quicksand, people drop into it and are swallowed up. And there's very graphic uh, newspaper cuttings of these, this, this thing happening. And Port Royal never recovers. It's, it's, you know, it's maintained as a naval base through the following centuries, but it never, never hits the highlights of its uh, 17th century heyday. And the whole of the economy moves across to to Kingston, which becomes the new capital. So, so you know, there's one example. The one of army in on the Turkish Armenian border is a, another example, which used to be the capital of Armenia uh, in in the medieval period, and then it too gets hit by a succession of earthquakes and other things, which lead to its abandonment. It was known as the city of a thousand churches, and again now a world heritage site. But these have echoes today, as we say, the tragic events of the earthquake in southern Turkey and northern Syria, uh, and the same the same things. So, so in uh, in Jamaica, the reason this catastrophe hit so badly was that the buildings at Port Royal were essentially European brick-built, solid buildings, and they couldn't cope with an earthquake. Uh, similarly, the, 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 building, uh, the buildings in southern Turkey, northern Syria, uh, the ones which were most vulnerable were the cheap concrete-built structures, which just couldn't, couldn't survive an earthquake, and that's where the tragedy lies. And of course, Ireland features as well because we get a, an insight into the Bronze Age landscape that has, in a way, been lost to us but can now be uh, rediscovered by some of these investigations. Yes, I mean this is this is one much closer to home, and this is this is sort of a, a version of Atlantis, really, uh, because we always think of these lost cities uh, covered up by water, but uh, across Ireland. But my particular study is of, uh, of the Sperrin Mountains. You've got a blanket of peat which sits over the top of a Neolithic and Bronze Age landscape, and so it's only when you peat that you see. In the case of the, the Sperrin Mountains, this uh, extraordinary ceremonial landscape. So we we go to to Birgmore in the Sperrins and then Copney, and amongst these between these two sites, there's something like 17 stone circles, which are part of the uh, part of the ceremonial landscape of the Bronze Age community living there. And the climate has changed subsequently, subsequent to them living there. So. The climate is deteriorating. They have to move on. Hence, the landscape is abandoned. Peat materialises and grows above this hidden Neolithic ceremonial landscape. And there's probably much, much more to discover. So Ireland features. It features on a couple of stories, actually. It features in Montserrat, which uh, is an island in the Caribbean. Again, suffers the a natural hazard of a volcanic eruption. Uh, and half the island is actually still out of bounds. But... Montserrat is known as kind of the 
the uh, the Irish island of the Caribbean because it's a place where so many indentured uh, Irish uh, Irish people were, were transported to to to, to work this uh, this particular place. So Ireland Ireland does feature, yes, of course. Is there a sense reading the book that perhaps in the past people were better equipped to deal with some of these uh, crises that uh, they seem to be able to handle earthquakes or flooding, they seem to be able uh, to deal with uh, uh, changes in climate, that they they seem to be better prepared for uh, some of these disasters that would occur? I think there's there's definitely something about if you, if you if you think of the past as this kind of long history of experimentation and failure of of success, invariably people have you know, people who live in earthquake zones know that earthquakes earthquakes are going to happen. So traditionally, they designed buildings which can accommodate uh, earthquakes. Again, classic examples would be that if you go to Japan, which is one of the most earthquake hit countries in the world. And you look at the pagodas in Japan, the traditional pagodas, they are they're constructed around a single Shinbashira pole, which is a wooden pole. And the whole structure kind of hangs, uh, the, the Toji pagoda in, in Tokyo is, uh, Kyoto, I think, is a classic example of that. And so when an earthquake happens, the building isn't rigid. It, it can shake, can move, and therefore it can accommodate the earthquake. When the when the crisis of the 2012 earthquake hits Haiti, for example, the you know, half a million structures uh, were destroyed and a huge uh, percentage of the population actually died in the capital. But only 5% of the traditional gingerbread houses, uh, which are timber-framed houses, collapsed. And the, so there's technology in there which we can learn from and adapt in the modern era, which you know, we just need to learn from these lessons. Doesn't mean we need to replicate them uh, to their nth degree. You know, we we live in a modern era, and we can replicate some of the thinking in modern materials. But we shouldn't ignore you know, to ignore the history, to ignore the past. Can start with a blank piece piece of paper every single time, which which clearly is madness. And I think particularly today, when we are in a world which is more and more hermetically Field. We, we consider ourselves, we can consider ourselves in control of nature. You know, we live in air-conditioned houses if you live in hot countries with triple or quadruple glazing. We have, you know, you, you can pump aromas into your building, sound smells. You know, we can control our environment. But the reality, of course, is, is we can't. People in the past lived much closer to uh, the a dynamic and changing environment. And given that so much has happened in the past that we can learn from, how come we haven't learned the lessons from history? Um, that, that's, that's a really good question. Uh, the, there's a, a wonderful quote uh, from Samuel Taylor Coleridge, uh, which kind of goes to the heart of this. And I think it, I'll just, I'll just uh, read it out to you. Uh, and he says, if men could learn from history, what lessons it might teach us? But passion and party blind our eyes, and the light which experience gives us is a lantern on the stern which shines only on the waves behind. I think there's something around humankind kind of only looking forward. And as an archaeologist, I tend to look backwards first, but I look backwards in the sense of want to use that knowledge for the future. So people think of archaeologists as as people who want to preserve the world in aspect, stop time, that, that couldn't be further from the truth. We're actually all about the careful management of change. So I think it's, it, it's a philosophy. Uh, and I think sometimes we, we kind of just seek to reinvent the wheel because that's human nature. And perhaps we shouldn't. So given that change has always happened, what should we learn from the past? How should we manage these changes? And what solutions do you think we should find from these examples? So I, I think there's, in the book, I go through I go through it on two different levels. So I go through an explanation of, you know, here are some practical examples of what they did in the past and why, you know, why are we not adopting these things today? And to be fair, we are in places, but there's so much more to learn. We, I went to a talk earlier this week about uh, reusing historic buildings. The interesting thing about this is that if you look at 
50% of carbon emissions across the whole world come from our buildings, either in their construction or their use. Uh, so one of the ways that we can you know, uh, accommodate climate change in the future, for example, would be let's reuse, let's re adapt and reuse our buildings. So that's one of the lessons. It's, it's a big lesson, but it's, it's a fairly obvious one. And we, we still, you know, I, I live in London, we're still putting up huge concrete, glass and steel buildings, which will be redundant in 40 years' time rather than thinking about you know, why don't we use the embedded carbon in our current structures, adapt that. There's definitely something around the, the, the lessons for the past. So if you, if you look at the Middle East or North Africa and you look at houses which have been designed because there was no air conditioning, how can we take those lessons and translate them into modern buildings today? So an example would be, if, if you look across, and many people know, the Middle East, there's this a particular type of window called a mashrabia window, which is normally on one side of the building, which is which projects outwards a little balcony, and it has perforations in it. And you can sit and look out of this window, which is part of its function. The different size perforations of the window means that air mixes, it comes into the building, draws across the cold water, the water, and it effectively acts as a coolant for the building, drawing air, water, uh, moist air into the building, cooler air into the building. Uh, and that's been a design which you, know, you look in Egypt, you look in Iran, you look in Iraq, you look in uh, Benghazi. You know, these structures exist. So what's the modern version of that, which means that we don't need to have air conditioning, which, as we know, is, is problematic. So, so there's very practical examples. The other end of the scale, I really I do concentrate on that message around conservation. You know, change is always going to happen. That, again, as an archaeologist, my the, the one thing I can guarantee in this world is it will change because we see that from prehistory, from the Sparrow Mountains example, all the way up through to you know, Route 66, which is another story which you know, changes because uh, new roads are built. So we see change all the time. So really it's about how do you manage that change in a way which which respects and enhances the spirit of the places in which we live. So it's a kind of philosophical angle, which is a very personal archaeological one, which for me really helps thinking about the future, about what do we conserve, what do we lose. And finally, given that there have been so many failures in the past, are you optimistic that we will be able to protect the cultures in the world today? I think so. I think I'm seeing, I'm seeing a change as people kind of recognise certain crises which are happening. Uh, climate I've mentioned already, uh, you see, for example, the, the, the weight that people put on their past in a positive way. So you, know, you, you go to Iraq, which I do, and people don't really want to talk about ISIS or the war. What they want to talk about is their extraordinary cultural heritage, Mesopotamia, the birth of civilization, the birth of writing, and they want to talk about the future. So I think there's something around. I have hope because people people are fascinated by where they come from and what that means to them and where they're going. And the history of the past is an important part of that. You know, without the past, we have no memory. Very good. Well, thank you so much for joining me tonight to talk about why civilizations collapse and communities disappear. The book is called Amongst the Runes, published in hardback by Yale University Press. The author, John Darlington. And John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Patrick. My pleasure. We'll be back with more Talking History as we go in search of the autograph tree right after this break. Welcome back to Talking History. Between the late 19th and early 20th century, Lady Augusta Gregory welcomed numerous distinguished literary and artistic friends to her home in Cool Park. Many of these visitors were invited to carve their initials onto a wonderful 160-year-old copper beech tree in her walled garden, which became known as the Autograph Tree. And a new book tells the story of the people who signed this tree and in doing so tells the story of the Irish literary revival. The book is called The Autograph Tree. It's published in paperback by Mercier Press. The author is William Henry. And William, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Patrick. Thank you. It's an extraordinary story. People, you know, flock to the, flock to um, Cool every year. You know, they have done 
for, for and particularly since 1994 when the autumn gathering started, you know. So, you know, for years I was actually visiting Cool Park and I'd bring visitors there because I'm a historian and, and a writer and I also I was also an archaeologist in my previous life. So um, I would bring people there invariably from time to time, you know, and I remember, you know, if when, like even, even in a social aspect, I would bring my children and, you know, families would go, go down there and we'd have little barbecues and picnics and that. And invariably, people would ask, invariably, the children would ask about the autograph tree. Who are these people? You know, what was their claim to fame and all of this type of thing? And it actually intrigued me and, and triggered me to, um, to, to actually investigate a little bit more uh, about the, these people on the tree. Because I recognized a lot of the names, obviously. But there were some there that I, I actually was, 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 uh, didn't realize, didn't fully, didn't comprehend that they would have anything to do with, 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 with Cool. The likes of Lady Margaret Saxville, uh, the, uh, Eleanor Monsell, Dame Edna Smith, Don Quinn, John Macefield, you know, and just to mention a few. And I decided to start looking at these, these people's lives. And I just said I'd put together some articles because I, I write sometimes for the local papers here as well, you know. So I became more intrigued by it. And the more the, I, I actually built up a great Irish literary uh, uh, library in the, in the process uh, because there were so many t- different books I had to, to, you know, to explore. And um, I discovered, you know, it was, you know a, a lot of information that I was unaware of. And I thought that was very intriguing for myself. And so I decided to uh, start putting it down on paper because, you know, Steve Patrick, there's been a huge amount of books, obviously, on Lady Gregory, and rightly so, and on W.B. Yeats, you know. And, like, without the, without their intervention, as you, as you mentioned there, between the late 19th and the early 20th century, Lady Gregory and uh, invited a huge amount of people to her, to her home. Now, she actually became a mecca for artists and uh, poets and playwrights and um it was there that they, they, they that they really kind of in 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 the you know in the comfort of her home like w Yeats, uh, like uh, spent a lot of time there in fact he, he spent so much time there that robert at one stage uh contacted him and said the next time you're coming mr Yeats, bring your own uh claret and, and brandy you know so that was kind of letting him know how, how often he was there but it was it was a match made in heaven for lady gregory and w Yeats because you know between them and without them I don't think the the the, the National Theatre would have existed. Um, they, I think one of the reasons for that for that is that you know at the time Ireland was going through a particularly uh, hard time, like with with, with a, a poverty hardship uh, in the particularly in the west of Ireland, and you know it was in the grip of political social you know issues as well that sometimes became volatile. So you know um, there was a new passion you know arose with the with the commemoration of the 1790 rebellion in 1898, and this fired people up, you know, in the idea of Irish uh, Irish national ideas, culture, traditions, and all of this. And Lady Gregory and W. Yeats actually latched onto this, you know. And so, uh, Lady Gregory, I have to say, uh, just does intrigue me, you know. Even though, as I said, there's been a lot written about her, but what, what I thought was fascinating from the home she came from, she was, you know, Augusta Purse, and you know they were they they were anti-Catholic, uh, an anti-Catholic family in 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 uh, County Galway, and she actually went over to the the other side, so to speak. She started collecting uh, Irish literature, Irish uh, folk stories, uh, particularly from around the people around Kiltart and all this, and she built up a great a great rep. Or with 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 the local people, and as as did Yeats, you know, and like while there was a lot of information available for 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 Gregory Yeats, and even George Bernard Shaw, who was also on that tree, and and Jack B. Yeats, in some of the cases there was very little. So I decided that the book had to be had to be. Uh, they would only get the same profile as everybody else, and the most important part of writing the book, uh, and it was, I put, put it this way to you, Patrick, it, I've written quite a bit like uh, over the years, and uh, this book was definitely one of the one of the most difficult to, to, to write in a sense. It was a wonderful book to write, but it was also that little bit more difficult than other books, because, you know, you're talk, I was talking about 27, it's actually 27 profiles that's in this book, so it's a, it's a mini, it's a series of mini biographies on, the, on who's who on the tree. And writing the book, I had to be very careful because a lot of the personalities would have intertwining lives. 
people you know were such as uh, W.B. Yeats, Lady Gregory, George Russell, and some others that were lifelong friends. And it was so important, you know, for me uh, that each signatory was profiled as a separate individual. Uh, as this was the actual original idea for the book. And, you know, um, given that it is a biographical account, it was important that these profiles could be read independently of, of, independently of each other. And, and, the, and the other advantage to this was that, you know, the various individuals could be explored. Like you could, you could read about George Bernard Shaw, you could read about, uh, um, about Moore or any of these and read their life stories without actually having to read the entire book. So that was, as well, that was important to give it another, another high aspect to, to it, you know. Um, and it was equally important to include connections between the various people and do it properly. Um, because, you know, uh, some people had strong inter, intertwining lives, such as the Fair Brothers, Frank and William. And this was unavoidable to, to, to include those, both of those men. Uh, there was a cross-section there between them. But, uh, but, um, but in the main, each uh, profile is independent. So tell me about the tree itself. It's in Cool Park in County Galway. Do you know who had the idea of, of starting this, this wonderful tradition? Was it Lady Augusta Gregory herself? It was actually, it was, and it, and it, all, it all started in, in 1898 when she invited W.B. Yeats uh, to you know, it was the first one to sign the autograph tree. I I actually don't know. I couldn't find in her in her journals where she actually came up with the idea. But it was a it was a fantastic, and it just it just led from one 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 to the other. And um, anybody that was really uh, important in in that particular uh, that particular time in her life uh, became very privileged to actually sign the tree. And it is a wonderful tree. In fact, you know, when I when looking at the tree today. Patrick, it's it's um, it is it, the house is gone, you know. When you're actually thinking about it, it's a, it's a living memory. Like when you look at it, the authors, the artists, they've all gone, and the days and nights have passed, and the house is no longer. And you know, it is the only living memory we have really in Cool Park. We have the woods and the lakes and all this, but the the tree is the actual connection with that world. It is the tree. It's the personal writing on that tree. You know, and the memories of people like the Lady Gregory's granddaughters um, remembered Sean Casey signing the tree, and they, they, he said to them that he was well used to it from signing, you know, from carving his name into the wood, into the back, the backs of doors in the slums of Dublin. You know, so there are some. Um, aspects of it there. Uh, it was actually, when you think about Violet Martin, another great writer, when she came, you know, she was absolutely honoured to have her name on the tree and she didn't carve it at all. It was actually W. H. that carved um, Violet Martin's uh, name onto the tree while she smoked a cigarette. But uh, and she she speaks about this in one of her letters to her, to, uh, to uh, one of her friends, you know. But it is, it's actually a living monument. There's no, there's no doubt about that. And you know, when you look at it, like the, the, the would say that Shakespeare and his friends hacked their names into the timber work of their favourite tavern. But Lady Gregory inspired her people to carve their names into this wonderful tree that would live on long after them, you know, and it is, it is, it's a symbol of Irish culture and heritage and it emits an atmosphere of timelessness from the overburdened branches and, and you know, when you go there, it really is a wonderful place to visit, it's, it's the tree, I, you know, I remember being there in May 2013 with a colleague of mine doing the research with me on this particular book uh, because it, it, it took a bit of time to do it. And we sat there, you know, um, having a cup of coffee, just sitting in the garden there. And it was a beautiful summer's afternoon. And the tree seemed to flow. It was amazing. We were just sitting there in, in the grass and, and looking at the tree, it ebbed and flowed. And, you know, she just said to me, you know, it's like it's like they're sitting at the bottom of the sea, see? And it really was. It was, it was just, it was kind of inspiring us to keep, to keep going with this book, you know? Uh, and you know, she said, it, "Like we just we agreed that it is, you know, w- without doubt, one of the most important trees in the world." I have to say that we talk about the dig tree in Australia, where Robert O'Hara Burke and these people in 1861 uh, died at Cooper's Creek. They named Dig and three, Dig three feet southwest. It's a fantastic tree and it's a wonderful history, but not like Lady Gregory's tree, not like the tree in Cool Park. The tree in Cool Park is, 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 to me, it's one of the most important trees in the world. 
it's sheltered now, thankfully. It's it protected, and it, it it stands a living monument, a living monument to the cultural aspect of in Ireland and in the Western world. And it's recognised that that, thankfully, and thank thankfully that in 1994, um, Sheila Donlan here in Galway and Ronnie O'Gorman and a number of others became together and they decided to honour Lady Gregory and her memory and in fact I was there in 1997 and had Lady Gregory's two granddaughters Anne and Catherine there and they were unveiling a, 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 a monument there so it was wonderful to meet those ladies as well to me they were a connection for Lady Gregory uh, and I and uh, I actually met at one stage as well I met Michael Yates W.E.S.'s son, and it was wonderful to meet him and talk about the tree and, you know, the, the, the living memory that that has for people and what it means to people here in Galway. It's, it's, it's here, it's part of our, one of the most important parts of our cultural history. And you know, Galway in 2020 was celebrating, it's, you know, it, it was awarded the, the City of Culture for Europe. And wonderful. But like we all know what happened in 2020, we didn't get the chance to celebrate it. But this is a chance to honour for people to honour Lady Gregory and all of these other people that signed that tree. You know, it, it tells a fascinating account of Lady Gregory and her guests in a, in, in a world that now that was lost, and now it brings it to life. And it, the life it shows the life of the house of the tree, of the woods in a, between the pages. William, it's an absolutely fascinating read. Who who are the surprises? You mentioned some of the names that you, you know, perhaps you weren't expecting, but who was the biggest surprise maybe that you well, thought, oh, I it's fascinating it, they were there? Yeah, the, the biggest surprise for me was General Ian Serene Hamilton. He uh, he was the, the commander-in-chief of the, the forces at Gallipoli in 1915, and we know the disaster that that was. And like he lost his position really after that, but uh, I couldn't figure out what, how was Sir Ian Hamilton. And uh, the, the, the point of this was, I actually couldn't find any record to him anywhere except that he signed the three. It was just mentioned in one of Lady, Lady Gregory happened to mention it, but I discovered that she, he was actually a relative. But he was possibly the one that I, I couldn't figure out at all. Like, like in fairness, it's all artists, you know, uh, poets, playwrights, authors that's on the tree. But Serene Hamilton and his friend. Sir Neville Littleton, he was there. These two men kind of, there were two generals in the, in the First World War, uh, two close friends, and uh, he was just accompanying Ian Hamilton. And I suppose the, way, the only way I could put it, to be honest with you, the only, the only conclusion I could come to was she invited General Hamilton to, to sign the treaty after the war, and Sir Neville was with him. So she, I suppose, out of courtesy, she might have invited him to do it. But then again, you know, when you look at it, you know, the, on the tree itself, there's 20, I find 27 names, right? But looking at it, um, there's two different seemingly lists of people on the tree. And it's kind of it's a little bit confusing. But so what I did was I included all the signatories to, make, to ensure that everybody was, was, was remembered. Because that to me was the, the most important thing, uh, regardless of the list or who made up the list. It was me, it was anybody that's mentioned in association with the tree had to be in the book. That was the way it was. He was definitely the most the most unusual, I thought, you know. Brilliant. Okay, well, William, congratulations on the book. It's called The Autograph Tree, published in paperback by Mercier Press. The author is the wonderful William Henry. And William, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks very much, Patrick. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, to Shannon Murphy on research and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.